Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Today on the show is Connor Beaton. He is the founder of Men Talks, which is um, a group for men um, to help with their progress and development as men. He's also uh, a speaker, he's an entrepreneur, and he's a writer. So he has a new book coming out called Men's Work. And that's what we talked about today was what's in men's work. And we kind of started with the beginning of the book where it's about discovering the shadow, which to be honest, if you're a girl listening right now, like it's valuable for you too. But isn't it fun to listen to also stuff to learn about men? I love it. Anyway, so discovering the shadow and then kind of coming around to the end, which the end of the book is about like the final boss that you have to face is the victim and how we don't want to look at that victim. But this was such a a tangible call to action kind of an episode where we talk about very real things, everything from stress to sex to how to get an erection, porn, purpose, roles, masculine, feminine. And he has just some really, really great ways to cope with things that so many of us deal deal with in the world, but especially men. So enjoy the conversation. Uh, please hit the subscribe button. Uh, also, let me know what you want to hear more about. Um, I love going through the comments and we pick a lot of guests based on what you say. So enjoy the episode and please uh, feel free to liberally send this to every man you know. That's Did you awesome. see me doing the F1 broadcast at all? You betcha. You betcha. <laughs> I loved it. I was like, yeah, get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had only done that one when I'd seen you or I was about to do one maybe. And then I did four this year and I think maybe yeah. seven or eight next year, maybe. Oh my gosh. Well, we were we were talking about uh, heading down to Vegas maybe next year because the race is on my birthday on November eighteenth, and and I and I turned forty next year, and so I was like, well, maybe we you know pile some people. It's just you know, Vegas is Vegas. I've never been before, but I sort of have like a natural opposition to Vegas. I think because my younger self probably would have never made it out of there alive. You know, <laughs> like I would have, I would have had some like fear and loathing in Las Vegas moment. Yeah. Uh, and just, and just, you know, Hunter S. Thompson out into the universe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's an opportunity to do just about anything in Vegas. You can go get a massage. You can work out in their, you know, 50,000 square foot gyms, or you can party all night. You know, it's like, it's like dealer's choice depends on what cards you have to pull from the, from, from the deck. That's fair. That's well, that'd fair. be fun. But I think Vegas is supposed to be like astronomically expensive. Did you see there was oh. one promotion for, I don't remember what hotel it was, but they were promoting a package, um, that was for the race and a hotel and whatever else and a few things. And it was, um, up for a bit of a million dollars. No, come on. <laughs> I mean, it's like F F one is definitely the bougiest sport out there. You know, it's like you're in Monaco, you're watching, you know, the race happen from a yacht. It's yeah, you're it's right. The, it might uh, be the bougiest. I I think it is. I think it, I, I I definitely think it is. I think it's like the you know maybe besides some form of like polo or something like that. You know, true. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. I've been super deep diving on. Uh, a lot of a lot of your podcasts and episodes on YouTube and and especially these days I've been really interested in the male perspective on things. Mm. Like I've talked to a lot of men and women but like I've just been much more motivated and curious about 
what it's like to be a man right now and like what the challenges are. And then I have about 50,000 other questions after that. (laughs) Great. Well, I'm, I'm up for it. So I appreciate you diving in and, and the interest in the, in the perspective and yeah. So what's it, what are, what are the biggest challenges you think these days for men that are maybe different than they have been? You know, I think it depends on a, a little bit of like where you live, your demographic. I, I think there's a number of things that that play into it, but I definitely think that there's a, a bit of a consensus within the male culture that what it means to be a man is far less clear than ever before, mm-hmm. and I think the the necessity of being a man and masculinity is far less maybe sort of necessary than ever before you know i think men are constantly hearing this sort of notion of like well men aren't needed and i don't need a man and and uh you know masculinity is dangerous and it's toxic and so i think you know one of the big challenges that i think a lot of men face internally and within our culture and within our society is just where do i belong where am i needed where am i wanted because there's a lot of stories out there and a lot of narratives out there and a lot of content that's put out on the internet that tells men that they're not needed and they're not wanted and that masculinity is dangerous and that men net you know as a net are sort of um bad and so i think a lot of young men are growing up in this culture that's telling them that masculinity is dangerous and that being a man is is sort of harmful and you can see this in in some of the literature that's out there, right? Like the American Psychological Association, the APA, back in 2019 uh, or 2018, put out guidelines for therapists and psychologists to work with men and boys. Mm. And in the guidelines, they they actually state that quote unquote traditional masculinity is harmful, both to men and women. Oh shit! And so you have not only culture. Uh, and society sort of saying, hey, you know, men are struggling, men are, you know, men are, you know, in decline. You, you can, and you can kind of see this across the board, right? Less mm-hmm. men are going to college, less men are entering into the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, we are at the highest rate right now in terms of men between the ages of 18 and 30 um, having uh, sexual relationships. So less men than ever before are entering into sexual relationships between the 18 and 30. It's hmm. actually up three times from what it was in 2010. So you have this huge population of men that are kind of checking out from culture and from society and being told that being a man by some people, right? Not by everybody. I just want to make that clear. But by some people yeah. are telling them, you know, if, if you're a man uh, or if you are masculine and you value masculine tenants and masculine characteristics, characteristics and traits, then you're dangerous and you're harmful and you're not needed in society. Um, So I think that's one of the big challenges. And then I think that, you know, there's many other things that we could talk about, but one of the things that I focused in on and I focused in on my work and in my writing. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra. 
one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul, to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. Is the the impact of, of um, not having a father around. And so this mm-hmm. sort of <clears throat> plague of absent fathers. Mm-hmm. And we can see again in the literature that not having a father in the household specifically can be quite dangerous. Uh, mm. So, you know, it's something like 90% of uh, all homeless and runaway children come from fatherless homes. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. Uh, 85% of all children who show behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. So this is, you know, this is sort of endemic within our culture and our society. And we know that not having a father around, a male figure around is damaging to a child's development, especially young boys where a father's role is to help regulate that young boy's aggression and aggressive tendencies. And so, and also to help children just take risks, right? To sort of like promote this risk-taking. So mm-hmm. I think those are some of the challenges that men are facing. I think dating is maybe not favorable for anybody these days. <laughs> I think it's a bit of a nightmare just from talking to people. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how you vote. I think, you know, I think dating apps have largely uh, caused a little bit of of challenge within the dating world. And so I don't think that's a male-specific thing, but I do hear a lot of men um complaining about the dating field uh but i think that i hear a lot of women complaining about well do that you think too, that so. that falls in line with you just said like there's a narrative out there that women don't need men is there a narrative yeah. on the other side of it where men don't need women or is it more of a turning away from this sort of new expectation levels or needs or wants that just maybe just don't fit or don't know how to fit right yet you know, I think our culture has gone through a massive uh, shift over the last however many decades, and everybody's trying to figure out what their roles are and what that looks like. And so I, I do think that some there are some men that are like, I don't need a woman in my life. And of course, we're talking in a heterosexual context, but I do think that there are some men that say that. But I think predominantly, at least from my viewpoint, there's a lot of communication to women that you shouldn't need a man, right? In order to be a good woman or a strong woman or a good, whatever it is, right? Feminist, et cetera, you shouldn't need a man in your life. And so I I do think that that gets, uh, that permeates into the conversation, it permeates into dating, it permeates into how people approach being around men. I do think that some men carry this, like, I don't need a woman in my life, but I think generally most men do want partnership you know they do want a relationship of some form or another and and i think women do as well i just think that it's different narratives that are being permeated i think generally what you'll hear a man talk about is um you know my purpose comes first right my mission in life comes first 
that doesn't mean I don't want a woman to come along the journey with me, right? That doesn't mean that at all. It just means that there's a priority within me to, to want to have my purpose and my function and my mission primary in my life. And, and I think, you know, largely we maybe underestimate how much men want to be needed within culture and society. You know, it's a very base and core foundational drive that many of us as men carry within us is like, I want to be needed in my relationship, in my family, in my culture. I want to have a very clear function that gives me a sense of meaning and purpose within my life. And so when we start to extract that out of the equation and, you know, like I remember reading because people send me articles all the time because I talk about this stuff, right? And there's, you'd be surprised how many articles are out there. Uh, if you just went and Google searched, like, is the world better without men? There's a ton of them asking these questions of like, you know, would the world be better without men? And it's like, well, why is that even a freaking well, question? It's the last you know? generation, if that's the case. <laughs> it's like, uh, what an interesting perspective, right? Wow, so, that's so negative. So a man wants to be needed. He needs to be needed. Maybe then actually the word is need. Man needs to be needed. Um, which sort of equates to a role. So can what the chicken or the egg, what do you think? Is there, is there a hierarchy of, of order of which it falls between purpose and being needed? Do you have Mm -hmm. to find your purpose before you can be receive a relationship or do you find your purpose by being needed in a relationship that then sort of opens you up to something greater? It's a good question. I don't know if there's necessarily uh, a hierarchy or like an order there. I think generally speaking, uh, I don't know how much flack I get for this, but like your relationship cannot be your purpose or your function in life. Mm -hmm. It can't be a mission. Mm -hmm. And it can be a part of where we feel satiated and where we get, you know, human connection and nourishment from love and deep conversations and a partner to explore with and many of those things. But, uh, but and we can feel needed within that relationship but i our our purpose needs to come outside of a relationship so what i usually say is like men respond to calling men respond to being called to serve something support something build something create something mm-hmm. bring structure and order to something and that calling is where we begin to find a, a space or a sense of needing, right? So if we see that there's a problem that's existing within culture or society, we can feel a calling to want to go and do something about that. Or if we can see that something's broken or needs support or needs fixing, we can feel called to go and have that be a part of our mission in life. So <clears throat> I think that those are two sort of separate things that men are often grappling with is that they they want to find a sense of of purpose and meaning and a mission in life and they want somebody to come along with them or to share that journey with them uh as they as they go through life i think what happens in a lot of modern relationships which we call codependency is that men don't have meaning or function or purpose something meaningful outside of a relationship that they find joy in and they feel like they have a function in that lights them up that causes them to develop a sense of mastery and skill in the world and so they put a tremendous amount of pressure onto the relationship and the relationship becomes their sole sense of function and meaning and purpose and so where they derive joy and happiness from 
uh, ends up coming from the relationship and it can press a, a lot of, of pressure and expectation onto that relationship, right? So if causing the other person to feel like, oh, you don't have a lot going on outside of me. And that can be a lot for the relationship to carry. And I think it's one of the challenges that modern day relationships face is that we've sort of Disney-fied relationships and we've we've been sold this expectation that, you know, you should find that one person and it should be perfect and it should be amazing and they should fill all your buckets in the world. And so you have a lot of people that are looking for a relationship. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. And their expectations is that their partner should be their lover and their confidant and their emotional processing center and their therapist and their coach and their financial advisor. And like every single role under the sun, they want that from a partner. And so mm-hmm. we've we've put a lot of expectations into the into the realm of relationships. Mm-hmm. And so I know I kind of took that in a little bit of a different direction, but yeah, I think generally speaking, men uh, find a sense of mission, find a sense of purpose by looking out in the world and starting to say, what do I feel called to contribute to? What do I feel called to bring my energy and my skills and my values and my perspective and my intelligence to? And, mm-hmm. and what can I really contribute to? There's there's immense value in that. Do you think that it's, I'm just going to put it on an equal playing field. Do you think that it a man and a woman both need to have an idea, have a have a goal, have a direction of who they want to become? Do you think they always need to be sort of striving towards something? Or is it okay to be settled? Like this is it? Hmm. I think that there is value and validity in having a period of your life where you strive very ferociously towards the possibility of who you could become Mm -hmm. to create and carve out a vision of this is what I think I'm capable of physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, relationally, you know, here's what I think I could build in the world. Here's what I think I could uh, contribute to within my society and my community. Here's what I think I'm capable of within my own mind and body, within my own spiritual practices, and then to really steer yourself towards that aim. And it doesn't mean that you're going to accomplish it, you know, wholeheartedly. It doesn't mean you're going to like, you know, go down the list and and knock all that off. But without that aim, without that possibility of seeing what you're you're capable of, you're sort of wandering around, you know, in the dark. And what, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot is this this concept of of shadow work, which was, mm-hmm. you know, created by Carl Jung back in the 20th century. And without us really starting to create a vision of who we think we could become, the version of us that we could step into, nothing changes. And we stay in this this space of mediocrity, which is very, uh, very rampant within our culture, right? And we stay in this space of comfort and over-prioritizing safety and comfort, which again is very rampant within our culture. And so I think a lot of people, both men and women, 
feel wildly domesticated within our culture right now. Very mm -hmm. domesticated. There's there's very little wildness mm -hmm. within our day-to-day -day lives. And so when you create this version of who you could become, it requires a little bit of wildness. You have to get out of your norm. You have to venture out into the, the territory of the unknown and start to discern, like, what am I actually capable of? You know, and can I push myself into this unknown territory of, of what I could do physically or emotionally or relationally or sexually or financially? And, and when you start to ask that question, that's where change really starts to happen. That's where you start to meet your edge. And when I say your edge, I mean, again, the, the limits of your current capacities and you start to expand the limitations that you currently have. And that's where transformation starts to take place. So can you articulate you know, what that is, what that experience is like? Because I think these are really important um, things to be heard because, well, it's not always pretty and people usually stop when things get hard. So can you just sort of give a quick little glimpse into what it looks like to go into these spaces, these edges that are unfamiliar, but sort of on the precipice of the next level for you or something that you want? Yeah. So as an example, if you start to create a vision of what you want relationally or physically, I'll just use sort of two alternating examples. Mm -hmm. You might say, I want to see what my body is capable of. Okay. And so you can be realistic with where you're at. You can say, here's where I'm at right now. I'm average weight, average height. I haven't really worked out that much. And I want to see what I'm capable of physically. So I want to see how much muscle mass can I put on? How much can I bench press and squat? You know, can I run an ultra marathon? And so you start to create a, a vision of what it is that you think you might be capable of and then work your way back from there, right? Mm -hmm. And it, again, what you might be capable of has to also align with with something that you care about, right? I, I personally have zero interest in doing an ultra marathon. Uh, some people do, but I want to see what I'm capable of physically in terms of like strength, you know, what can I accomplish there? And then flexibility. I want to see what I can accomplish there. And so we have to create the vision of what that looks like and create some metrics that go alongside with it. Uh, and so those metrics might be, you know, within the next year, I want to gain a certain amount of muscle mass. I want to reduce my uh, my body body mass index, right? I want to reduce that. I want to keep track of my glucose levels and start to get a sense of what causes my body to spike in glucose. And so you can start to iron out all of the different pieces that are going to contribute to you seeing what it is that you're capable of within that one field. Another example is within your relationship, right? I think a lot of people, um, how do I want to say this? <laughs> I think that many people have a entertainment version or view of what their sex life could look like. And, oh, we're going to talk about porn. Trust me. <laughs> and uh, and and so I think it it sort of diminishes our capacity to really understand what we could be capable of sexually within the bedroom with our partner or, or whatever that your relationship status looks like. And so you have to be able to be willing to say like, what might I be capable of? Not from an ego standpoint, but what might I be sexually capable of if I remove some of the constraints? If I was willing to face 
my fears or my preconceived notions of what it means to be a sexual being or what my religious upbringing told me that I still, you know, I no longer follow that, that, that doctrine, but mm -hmm. I'm still sort of following it in within my relationship, right? So if I threw away those confines, what might I be capable of? And what steps, what action would I have to take? What edge would I have to push? What fears would I have to face? And so you can start to look at that from a place of maybe you go and take a Tantra class, right? Or a BDSM class or Shibari or whatever it is, or you start to bring breath work into sexual encounters and interactions. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, every single action that you take is going to push an edge, right? Because mm -hmm. all of those things that I just listed off there very briefly for, for most people, if they just chose one of those things to do, like sitting down with their partner and uh, using breath as a means to create intimacy and to create presence within the sexual interaction, that would push an edge for them, you know, immediately. That would probably be uncomfortable. You're like, oh, what, what am I doing? This is weird. Right. And so, so I think so you're uncomfortable. Think, so uh, getting yeah. uncomfortable. Yes, getting uncomfortable, being able to see who you become in the face of discomfort. Most of us don't like who we are when we're faced with discomfort, and that's the shadow, right? Ooh. We don't like who we are because we Ooh, become yes. <laughs> we become insecure and avoidant, and we project our shit on the other person. We blame them, and we become petty, and we attack, and you know all, all that kind of stuff. So we don't like two things. We don't like who we become oftentimes when we're facing discomfort. And for us as men, I'll just speak for the male perspective, especially, I think it applies to women as well. We generally don't want to see who we become when we feel powerless. And so a huge part of a man's work is to see who he becomes when he feels powerless, right? Within the context of a relationship, right? So just, I'll give you an example because it's sort of maybe vague. Say you're in a relationship with somebody and you keep having these conflicts and you're trying to solve this problem with your partner. You can't figure it out. And you're like, what the hell is going on? And why can't I fix this? And why does she keep getting mad at me about this? There's a sense of powerlessness that is showing up within your relationship and within you, right? I feel helpless to change this. I can't solve this problem for her. I can't fix this. And when is it, we- Does this also include like, I don't want to? Does that become part of the- Sure. Narrative as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to. That's usually. That's usually on the other side, right? It's usually when we feel powerless that we begin to use these coping mechanisms, okay. right? It's like, okay, I I can't help this. I feel helpless. I feel powerless, and so I'm going to check out. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to talk to her anymore. I'm not going to engage. Um, I don't care, right? I don't give a crap. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be willing to see our own reactivity, our own anger, our own. Um, mechanisms of avoiding when we feel powerless and enter into that space because if we're not willing to do that then we're forcing other people to deal essentially with who we become in the moments of our powerlessness and that's generally a pretty petty uh pretty accusatory childish person right mm -hmm. that's that's what most of us resolve to right we we sort mm -hmm. of uh degrade into children when we feel helpless or powerless and of course that that uh that kind of um emotion comes out the uh, you know no it's you <laughs> i want to go a little deeper into how to discover your shadow because you gave a great example but for 
so many, um, even myself, like, I think this is applicable for everyone, to be honest, is what are some tricks or some indicators to give you insight into what your shadow is or where you can start to kind of go deeper um, Mm -hmm. into it? Yeah. So just really quickly to define what the shadow is, essentially the shadow is the part of you that you don't want other people to know about, right? It's the sort of conglomeration of your insecurities, your fears, uh, your perceived inferiorities. And generally speaking, those those parts of you, because they are parts of you, were created when you felt betrayed as a kid or you felt abandoned or you felt abused or you felt neglected or you were bullied at school you know for the way your body looked or Mm -hmm. uh for being stupid or whatever the case may be and so we all have these parts to us that we don't want other people to know about and then we have parts to us which i'm going to avoid talking a little bit about right now that we don't want to see Right. So there's parts mm-hmm. of us that we don't know about that we're like, oh, I don't even want to see that shit. <laughs> right. So where do we begin? Well, the easiest place, the easiest place. And, and maybe I'll just say one more thing about it um, before I just sort of give you the, the access point. The reason why the shadow is so important is because this is the psychological material that gets in the way of your goals and your aims and your trajectory mm. and what you want to build and what you want to create and the type of relationship that you want to have the shadow is the part of you that sabotages that that gets in the way is like no you don't deserve that no you're not worthy or no you should stay up until three o'clock in the morning and get shit faced <laughs> and you know show up to that that big presentation that important meeting with that client hungover as hell right so the shadow is that part of you and there's a a great American therapist named Francis Weller, who says your pain has its own intelligence. Your pain has its own intelligence, right? So our work, and as I tell this to men all the time, our work is to start to face our pain, right? I, the first line of my book is a man's work begins in pain. So we mm. have to begin to start to understand what is the what is the intelligence of our pain trying to say? What is it trying to communicate? And where is it already expressing itself in our life? You know, because if we can start to pay attention to that, then we can get a sense of what's happening within us, right? So, okay, with all that said, when we do this, we begin to reclaim these parts of us, right? In, in mythology, you see people enter into the cave, face the dragon, mm-hmm. reclaim the gold, right? Yeah. So when you do shadow work, you enter in the cave, you face the dragon, your insecurities, your inner critic, right? That judgmental voice is just constantly mm-hmm. shit talking you. Um, and you reclaim the gold. So that part of you gets to have a place within your inner kingdom where you're not at odds with it. You're not fighting it. You actually have built some kind of a relationship with it. So where we see it is within what what Jung called our reactivity. So anytime that you become reactive or aka defensive, critical of somebody else, judgmental of somebody else, shutting down, right, avoiding a conversation, That reactivity is a big neon sign pointing towards your shadow saying, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm acting from my pain, from my hurt, from this part of me that I, my insecurities, right? You might have probably felt your shadow if you've ever been in a relationship where all of a sudden you found yourself like 
you know, needy as all hell, stage five clinger, texting the other person constantly, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, I know I just texted them six times in a row and I know I probably shouldn't do this again, but I'm going to text them anyway, even though they haven't responded. Right. Uh, so that's the shadow, right? It's like, I feel unworthy. I feel needy. Um, and I, I don't feel worthy of this person's love and care and attention. So that reactivity is what we need to start to pay attention to. That's the access point. Okay. Right? So what I usually say is don't react, regulate and respond. Okay. Don't react, regulate and respond. And all that means that. is that there's a, I'll just bring in a great author, Victor Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He said between stimulus and response, there's a pause. When we are acting from our reactivity, it's largely unconscious. We are not pausing. Right. We're not noticing what we're feeling or experiencing. And for the most part, we're not even um, consciously deciding whether what we're saying yeah. to that other person is uh, congruent or in integrity for us, right. right? We're just reacting. Screw you. How could you? Right. You know, why don't you? You always, you never. And we are communicating from this very unconscious place. It's why when you hear people say like, oh, I, I just lost it. You know, in that argument, I just lost it. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. what did you lose? What, what did you lose in that moment? Right. It's like, no, you lost your consciousness, mm -hmm. right? And you lost your conscious capacity to respond to that other person in a healthy, grounded way. How do we catch it? <laughs> How do you catch okay. that? Yes. So, so very, I'm going to give you four steps. Okay. Cause people love their, their bullet points and their steps. And Hell yeah, we it's, do. It's just, it's very helpful, right? It's very, very helpful. So, the the very first step that we need to become uh, aware of is we need to get familiar with the signs, familiar with the signs that we are being reactive. Mm -hmm. So we need to get familiar with the physical signs. What does mm -hmm. that reactivity feel like in the body? You know, when God, you're getting this angry. Some, this is some work here for everyone, but especially for men, I feel like to like actually feel things viscerally, yes. to feel where it hits in the body and what's happening with your heart rate, what's happening with your ten, how tense are you? What's your stomach feel like? What does your chest feel like? Why do you feel like that's so important? Having maybe been on the other side. I think it is the ultimate lie detector. I think oh. that your mind can lie to you, but your body doesn't. Very true. What's it like to be around a man who is disconnected from what his body's experiencing? Like if he's like, I'm not angry, and mm -hmm. you're feeling like his body's just emanating mm -hmm. anger, mm -hmm. what's that like? It's a wall. It feels like a wall. It feels like there's no way to get through that because there's dissonance around the truth and always trying to get around it somehow, some way, not listening to not listening to their body, not feeling their body and matching that up with something vulnerable. Like it lacks mm. vulnerability because usually behind that body is the feeling is a truth that's usually people I feel like aren't actually like mad at you. They're triggered into an emotion because of something that happened to them in their past. So it's like you're part of it, but it's not really about you. Mm hmm. Yeah. So it's harder to trust them. Yeah. Right. It's harder to trust them. It's hard mm -hmm. to really trust a person who is saying one thing rationally or intellectually, but their body is emitting a very different truth. Right. right? And right. so, so we have to get clear on what the signs are, especially physically. It's just like, okay, when I feel anger, what does that feel like? You know, for me, the analogy I always give 
is I'll start to feel a little bit of fire in my belly. And then at some point, it's almost like the, for people who have seen Iron Man, he's got that like energy piece in his chest <laughs> that sort of like lights up. It's mm -hmm. like, there's a point where I just feel that come online. And I feel a huge intensity in my chest and then it starts to, you know, bubble up. And so generally speaking for most men, when that energy of their anger gets into their head is mm -hmm. when it's, it's lost, right? So we have to be able to pay attention to the energy in the body first, what we're experiencing, what we're feeling. So we have to get clear on the signs physically, but we also have to get clear on the signs uh, verbally. What does it sound like when you're reactive? Mm -hmm. you know, do you get louder? Mm -hmm. Do you hear yourself saying certain things? Do you hear yourself complaining about this, you know, the same thing over and over again? Do you hear yourself uh, using what we call universals, right? You always, you never, right? Which are these sort of absolute statements about how the other person is acting. Do you catch yourself being very critical of the person? So get clear on what the signs are when you are reactive. And if you really aren't too sure, you know, obviously start physically, but mm -hmm. inquire with people that you trust. You know, it's like when I get reactive, when I'm angry, when I'm disconnected, I'm shutting down, what does it look like? What does it sound like to you? And what does it feel like to you in your body? And that'll give you some clues as to what it looks like and what it sounds like, and then what it feels like to, to be around you. So that's number one. Okay. Number two is to just name it out loud, right? Just say, I'm being reactive, right? Or I'm being angry, or I'm being aggressive, or I'm being critical, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is that you're actually being in that moment from reactivity, because ownership the first one is awareness, right? Yep. Getting very clear yep. on what you're feeling. And then the second one is ownership, right? Yeah. So naming it out loud. And then third, say what you're actually feeling. Mm. So for most of us, in almost every single moment, what we're actually experiencing is not the anger. It's uh, something underneath, right? We oh, were yeah. embarrassed. We were Sadness. ashamed. Fear. Right? We were sad. We felt lonely, yep. right? We, we felt disappointed, Scared. whatever it is, right? Yeah. And so what I say in the book is that it's easier for a man to say fuck you than it is to say i'm hurt oh, it just is yeah. so much easier right and i felt that in my own life it's so much easier for me to say fuck you to the world or society or my partner or my friends or my family than it is to say shit that hurt you know that really hurt what you did what you said you know forgetting to call me or for whatever it is that hurt me and so we have to practice being mm -hmm. strong enough to say that hurt me I didn't mm. like that, mm. you know? So the third step, say what you're actually feeling. And then lastly, shift the attention from your mind into your body. Shift your cognition to sensation physically. Mm -hmm. So Einstein had a great quote. He said, the, the rational mind is a faithful servant and mm -hmm. the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. But mm -hmm. we've created a culture that honors the servant, the rational mind, mm -hmm. and has forgotten about the gift. And we as men have been brought up in this culture, um, right or wrong, that over-indexes the rational mind, yeah. that tells us that the rational mind is going to solve every single problem in our life. And mm -hmm. so that's the tool that we deploy whenever mm -hmm. something's going wrong. Mm -hmm. But the very simple truth is that your rational mind cannot solve emotional problems. It cannot solve emotional equations. So when you're dealing with an emotional challenge in your relationship, your rational mind's very limited to figure it out. Very, very limited. So if you can't speak the language of emotion and you can't feel the energy of that in your body, 
you're stunted in your capacity to move you or the relationship through that problem that's happening, whether it's something that's happening within your sex life or your finances in the relationship or whatever the disagreement is. So we have to be willing to move into the realm of sensation. Can I be with the heat of the anger? Can I be with the weight of the sadness? Can I move my mind literally out of my rational thoughts? How do I fix this? How do I solve this? How do I figure out what she needs into what am I experiencing right now in this moment? Talk about the role of stress with men. And, you know, I think that, you know, while there's roles being sort of questioned or challenged, um, you know, especially when we think about the earning power of women continues to go up right now, um, that I think there's a certain age right now, it's a very young age is outperforming men um, financially. They're making more money than men these days. They're doing better in school. There's a lot of things. So, um, but yet a man, it feels like a man, a man won't, like, this is what I understand, wants to be needed, needs a role as a provider, keeps a woman safe, all kinds of things like that. So, what role, like there's a lot of things to stress a man out. So talk about the role of stress and how that plays into um, their ability to have those rational conversations or body guided conversations to um, sex life, to connection and being able to let those walls down. Like what role does stress play in the body? It's That's a big awesome question because it's a it plays a massive role in a lot of men's lives in a lot of our lives i think in general mm-hmm. um i wanted to say one thing you know there was research that was done i think just before the pandemic that showed that 42 percent of Amer- uh, american households and 42 percent of american households uh w- the female partners out earning the male partner yeah. and so we've entered into a space where in almost half of american households the woman is the primary breadwinner And so roles have shifted, Um, you know, financial, uh, the way that things look within the household has shifted. But I think our capacity to have the conversations, that's a giant glass of water, by the way. That's, (laughs) that is awesome. (laughs) It's a perspective thing. It's not even even a mason jar. It's just a, just a giant glass of water. I love that. Um, That should hopefully encourage people to go watch the video. (laughs) Yeah, advertising. Right. Um, so, you know, I think we, in our culture, we need to be able to have these conversations. Yeah. But so I just, that's just wanted to put that out there in Good. terms of the, the role that stress plays, <clears throat> I think it plays uh, a role in many different things. I'm going to f- just approach this by breaking down what actually happens within our body. Cause I think Great. I didn't actually know this. I don't think most people actually know this, you know, you have two branches to your autonomic nervous system. You have your uh, sympathetic and your parasympathetic, right? Mm -hmm. Your sympathetic is like the gas pedal. So that's what happens when you're getting stuff done, when you're working, when you're working out, it's tied to your fight, flight, or freeze response. So when conflict happens or you feel more stressed out, you're in this state and your body has a very specific response when you're in that sympathetic response state, right? So you're, uh, your breath per minute goes up. So you're actually breathing faster. Your heart rate goes up, Mm -hmm. right? So your body's working a little bit harder. Your body's releasing more cortisol, more adrenaline, Mm -hmm. depending on how stressed that you actually are. And then on the other side of the spectrum is your parasympathetic, which is like the brake pedal, right? So Mm -hmm. that's responsible for rest, digest, being calm, feeling peaceful, et cetera. 
interesting fact that most people don't know is that in order for a man to be aroused, in order for a man to get an erection, he has to be in a parasympathetic dominant state within his nervous system. So he actually has to be in a more restful, more calm, digestive state in order to get aroused. So mm -hmm. a lot of the non-medical erectile dysfunction problems that happen, a lot of the non-medical um, premature ejaculation challenges that men face is not because there's something physically going wrong besides the fact that they can't get out of that stress state. Uh -huh. They literally cannot move their body yeah. out of this place of their breath is, is going really fast, their heart rate is elevated, their body's releasing cortisol, stress hormones, adrenaline, et cetera. And, they and it can't gets move. worse too. The more time you spend in sympathetic, the harder it is to get into parasympathetic, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So your body sort of acclimatizes to this like yeah. go, 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 you know, maxed out, always on state. Mm -hmm. And it becomes hard for a man to feel regulated, to feel grounded, right? There's a lot of terms that get thrown around out there, but it becomes hard for a man's body and mind to move out of this stress state and into a relaxed state. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> what do we do? right? We turn to things like alcohol, which is a suppressant. Mm -hmm. We turn to things like weed, which is supposed mm -hmm. to help us calm down. Well, there's a lot of research now coming out that if you're a chronic user, which is more than twice a week of smoking weed, that over, uh, a, long, over a period of time, that can actually increase your level of stress and anxiety, it can actually mm -hmm. deregulate your body and your nervous system even more so. Andrew Huberman uh, has some great research on that. Wow. And and so we turn to porn, right? Porn is probably the number one way that men try to regulate their nervous system, to feel relaxed, to feel calm. Because after you watch porn, after you ejaculate, your body, a man's body will actually release things like dopamine. So you feel good. Oxytocin, mm -hmm. the bonding chemical, and then something called prolactin which in women is respo responsible for something very different. But for men, it's actually a calming down agent. Oh. So it's a neurochemical that gets released and says to a male body, you should calm down, you should relax a little bit. So it's why a lot of men after getting off, they feel a little bit sleepy, they feel tired, their body moves into this very like restful mm. state, hmm. right? So, <clears throat> so this level of stress occupying this territory um, causes us to largely feel more insecure struggle to make more concrete decisions create direction vision for our life have challenging conversations right uh, go through conflict in a healthy way which is incredibly important for any relationship right the number one uh, thing that any relationship needs to, to to do is to get through conflict in a healthy positive way to come out the other side okay it's what we need as human beings and so all of these things become more challenging, right? Focusing on your task, it can, you know, increase ADHD. So stress is a huge challenge for a lot of people. And so we, and, and the problem is, is that we live in a society that prioritizes medication versus meditation. Well, right? I mean, shoot, people so, use, people use marijuana for medication to like go right. to sleep. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think again, the literature on that is uh not great you know like 
because the THC content, and we, we probably don't need to go down this path too, too much, but because the yeah. THC content has been like wildly dialed up, right. uh, for a lot of people over time, what will start to happen is that it actually replaces, you know, it binds with a CB1 receptor in your brain, which is the, the primary receptor to your nervous system. And so it actually starts to replace your body's natural process of, of regulating. And so you start to create this little bit of a dependency on it to feel like you're calm and grounded and de-stressed, and that can feel good for a while. But for the majority of people, what will start to happen is if they're using more than twice a week for a prolonged period of time, is that that will wear off and they'll actually start to feel more anxious and if more panicked. If you don't panicked. use it. Especially if you don't use it. it, right? If you don't <laughs> use it, you lose it. That's good. That's good. <laughs> what are the good releases? What can a man do for relief instead of turning to something like porn, instead of turning to alcohol, instead of turning to cheating, instead of turning to react, overreacting to things like instead of doing those things, um, or avoiding, um, leaving the home, whatever that, 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 that may be, what are healthy forms of relief or release so there are some very basic things right there's some very basic things i think you know if you listen to pod if you're somebody that listens to podcasts quite a bit you've probably heard this big push on most health people's podcasts to uh cold immersion right to sort of like cold therapy to uh saunas to breath work and <clears throat> there's a reason for that your breath is the primary um the the primary thing that can actually impact the dial between your stressed part of your nervous system and your relaxed part of your nervous system, right? So if you're really stressed out, you're very anxious because there's almost no difference from a neurological stance between stress and anxiety. They're they're almost the same neurologically, right? In terms of the chemicals that get released and how your nervous system is operating, et cetera. So your breath is the pathway that can help you move out of that stress state. So if you use very specific breathing exercises, right? One of them is called the box breath, which has been very popularized, right? So you inhale for a count of four, you pause for a count of four, you exhale for a count of four, and you pause for a count of four. And you do that box cycle for about five minutes. And when you do that, you're regulating your breath cycle to such a degree where you're sending a signal to your heart to slow down. So as you regulate your breath, your body starts to naturally relax, your heart rate starts to naturally decrease, mm -hmm. and then your brain starts to reduce the amount of stress chemicals that it's going to be emitting out into your system. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Another breath cycle that has been researched time and time again to help with HRV, uh, and it's specifically given to people with uh, PTSD and the people that are prone to panic attacks is mm -hmm. inhaling through the nose for a count of four, pausing for a count of two, and then exhaling out the mouth for a count of six and pausing for two. Mm -hmm. And so you do that cycle again for four, five, six minutes. And what actually happens is that when you exhale longer on the exhale than you do on the inhale, that compression slows down the heart rate naturally right so it actually slows down the heart rate over time and mm. decreases stress within the body and it sort of not forces but naturally causes your body to move into a more parasympathetic calm oriented state it might mm. feel challenging at first a lot of people that that have 
uh, high levels of anxiety and high levels of stress for the first 60 to 120 seconds, it's probably going to be like, oh, this is super labored and it's challenging. It's hard. But that's the point is that you're interfering with your body, with your body's normal patterns, right? Because for most people, the more stressed they are, the more anxious they are, the faster they're breathing, right? The more unconscious uh, unconscious they are with their breath and the faster that they're breathing. So your breath is the first part. The second part of how you can start to de-stress is prioritizing things that are uncomfortable, but you're choosing that discomfort, right? So this is why cold immersion is a, is a very big, uh, there's a big push for it. Because mm-hmm. what's happening when you're doing that is you're putting your body into a natural stress state and you are calming yourself under that duress. Yeah. So it's like a training ground oh, for shit. you to actually like put yourself into a naturally stressed state, even if you just want to do a cold shower, right? If you're not like, I don't want to go jump into an Arctic, you know, lake or river, sure. just do a, a warm shower. And at the end of the cold shower, turn it at the end of the hot shower, turn it to cold, as cold as you can take it for about 60 seconds. <clears throat> regulate your breath, focus in on your breath, right? Because yeah. your breath's going to want to go like, <laughs> you know? Right, you do. And like it's gonna wanna... shocking. And then you have yeah. to tell yourself to call, like you go, <sighs> you know, yes. like that's kind of what you do when you get that cold because you just, you you realize you're getting out of control. Yeah. So that, and there's a ton of benefits to this, right? And this is, um, hmm. you know, there was a study that showed that just by taking a 60 second cold shower every single day, the people in the study reduced the amount of sick day sick days that they were taking by 30 to 40% within a, within a single year mm-hmm. right so it's actually helping your body regulate it's decreasing inflammation it's mm-hmm. uh balancing out the pH levels within your body which is a very important thing cuz the more acidic your body is the more mm-hmm. inflamed it is mm-hmm. and then the more volatile you are mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so <clears throat> that's another simple one and then i think the last one which is sort of unsexy and this is the one that I always advocate for because <laughs> it's it's like it's honestly what I had to do uh, for a number of years was you got to sit in the fire. You have to sit in the fire of the intensity of what you're feeling in your body. And so I would just do something that I started calling the fire meditation, which is that the when I felt the most angry, the most aggravated, the most sad, the most depressed, the most lonely is when I would just go sit down and set a timer for 10 minutes and close my eyes and breathe and feel into the intensity of what I was experiencing in my body. Mm. And that's so important because the majority of the time when we have conflict in our relationship or with our boss or with some random person at the coffee shop, it's not what they're saying that's the problem. It's what we feel in our bodies that's the issue. We want to get away from the intensity of what we're experiencing within the vessel of our body, right? So if you can begin to increase your tolerance and understanding that what you're experiencing is not a threat, it's not a danger, it's not a problem, you're actually practicing what the Stoics talked about, right? That's what Stoicism was. It was to be able to expand your tolerance for what you were experiencing internally without demonizing what you're experiencing. It's not that you completely got rid of your emotions or you became, or there's this notion in our modern culture that stoicism is about being emotionless. That's not it. It's that you're aware of what you're experiencing internally, but it's not a problem. And so for some of us, how we do that is by sitting and breathing 
and feeling this, the intensity of those sensations. It's like mm-hmm. one of the most challenging things in dealing with men that have anger challenges, right? Where their, their anger is very volatile and it overruns them mm-hmm. is that they actually have to practice building tolerance for their internal state. And this is what Buddhism and meditation and a lot of these other sort of spiritual traditions are, are teaching is that you have to sit with your internal experience. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the biggest practices that anyone can do at any time, right? You get into conflict with your partner or boss or whatever, and it doesn't feel good. You know, you sort of feel dysregulated. You're not communicating properly. Remove yourself, go sit for 10 minutes, close your eyes, breathe and feel the intensity of the body. And notice how much you are flailing to get away from that experience. <laughs> right, right, and get used to being able to sit in it, and then yes. your strength will increase to be able to have more tolerance for it. Full stop. Right, full stop. it's a training. It's kind of like the it's like the cold. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and so you know awesome. that's why, like in our within my company, Man Talks, our our slogan is it's not therapy, it's training. Right? <laughs> you know, yeah. I think a lot of what men are like therapy isn't sexy to us as guys. You know, I had a big aversion to it for a long time. And like, here I am doing the work here that I do now, therapist. right? I'm mar- married to a freaking one of the best therapists in the world. Right. And so <laughs> it's, it's kind of a kind of ironic, but I think in many ways, what we as men are looking for, like whenever a man comes to me and he's like, I don't feel confident. I don't feel confident in who I am and what I want. What he's actually lacking is, is some sort of competence within his self, the ability to feel like I am comp- competent in what I do. I can competently sit with my emotions or communicate with my partner or ask for my needs or set mm-hmm. a boundary or say no. It's actually a skill set problem for the most part. And so if we can approach this as, hey, you know what? Maybe nobody taught you how to, in a very skilled way, be with your anger maybe nobody taught you in a very skilled way how to communicate your needs or set a boundary and that's okay and it's or not a problem it. because that's a skill yeah. right just like discipline discipline's a skill yes. so you know in terms of what we were talking about before to just tie this in when you have a vision of who it is that you want to become part of that is what skills do you want to acquire or you what know? do you need yeah what do you need along the way yeah I want to talk about something that you talk about a lot. Um, want to hear about nonconformity. And, uh. you know, I think that maybe I think this is a really great conversation to have because I feel like this could be the entry point for men to start to, you know, have more confidence, be able to be more regulated, to be more autonomous, to be more calm. Like there's just I think this is a a really cool cool um topic to dive into and just explaining what nonconformity is and how does that how does that look for for a man you know i think that we live in this kind of cult of specialness within our modern culture that tells us that we should conform to what it means to fit into society and to be special and everyone wants to be you know sort of very very special and and but generally generally what that looks like is conforming to the modern narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of men, they've they've gotten caught in a trap. Not all men, right? I just want to make that very clear. But certainly for myself, in my younger days, I fell into the trap of trying to be special by conforming to what I thought other people wanted, 
what I thought culture wanted, what I thought society wanted, and especially what I thought women wanted. Like I was lost as a young man, turning myself into a pretzel, trying to figure out who women wanted me to be. And so I was a very adept, very good chameleon, but I didn't really have a strong sense of who the hell I was and what I wanted and what my actual identity was because I had been so um, brought into this idea that in order to make a woman happy, in order to have a woman like me, and in order to get a woman's attention and validation, I had to become who she wanted me to be. And so there were all these opposing stories and narratives that told me this is how I should operate as a man in order to make women happy socially, from a societal standpoint, but more specifically within relationship. And so there was this innate threat of me going against that grain, of actually being authentic to who I was and what I wanted, and to speak that in the context of relationship. We as men have a very peculiar relationship with fear. You know, we operate from this notion that suppression equals strength. And that the more I can suppress and hide my fear, hide what I'm afraid of, hide my insecurities, the stronger I will be. But it's it actually has a very net negative impact on our lives. And so <clears throat> this notion of conformity, non-conformity, is that you actually start to carve out a sense of individuality. Right. This is what Jung called the process of individuation, process of wholeness, the process of honoring who you authentically are. And, and so it means that you have to start to identify how have you been trading your own authenticity for belonging? How have you been trading your own authenticity for validation, for like, you know, for Facebook likes or Instagram or whatever it is, or for attention from the opposite sex or for a sense of belonging in your work environment? And you have to sort of be willing to go against that grain because there's something within us as specifically within the sort of masculine nature that values nonconformity. And that that nonconformity plays a very specific and very important role within our culture, right? If everyone just conformed to what the norm was, what the narrative was, we'd probably be in a lot of trouble, right? That's the pathway to authoritarianism mm -hmm. and uh, dictatorships, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it, it has been historically the the masculine, I won't say men, but the masculine standing in the space of nonconformity. I, I won't conform to that narrative, right? Or I won't conform to who it is that you want me to be or who it is that you're telling me to be or mm -hmm. what it is that you're telling me to believe. Okay. And in doing so, we create a space where it's like, oh, maybe there's a possibility for me to see what it is that I want, right? So if you're telling me that I should work a nine to five job and I should buy a house with a white picket fence and get married at this age and have 2.2 kids, and that's what I'm supposed to conform to, does that actually make me happy, right? Does that actually interest me at all? Or can I create space for me to venture out into the world, venture out into the unknown and figure out what it is that I actually want in my life, the type of relationship that I want, the yeah. type of person I want to be with and to honor that. The question is how to that. figure it out. The, the hard question is how do you figure it out? <laughs> right. Well, it's it is by first admitting that you have no clue right yeah. it's like jung said that the first step to the therapeutic process is confession and if you look in any therapeutic modality any spiritual mod modality they'll all say admission or confession is the first step 
to just hmm. say, actually, I, d- I don't know. I don't know what it is that I want or to admit I have been sacrificing what I authentically want yeah. and giving that up in, in order to get something from you. Right. And so when we do that, then the possibility opens up of us being able to explore what it is that we want or to own what it is that we actually want or own what it is that we actually are. And I think that that nonconformity is appealing and attractive. You know, I think that for a large uh, for for a large part, we want people within our culture and our society who are not going against the grain just to go against the grain, right? That's not really nonconformity. That's just reactivity in the face of the the norm or the narrative. And that's what we see a lot of in our culture right now. You know, it's like there's the standard narrative and then there's the reaction to that narrative. Mm-hmm, there's what mm-hmm. people want you to believe or buy or agree to. And then there's the reaction to that. The opposite is like, I'm just opposing this to oppose this. And so there's this there's this sort of binary loop that people are caught in right now in our culture that doesn't leave a lot of space for individuality. So when you can say, actually, I'm not going to conform to either of those. I'm not going to get caught in this narrative, but I'm yeah. also not going to get caught in just reacting and sure. rebelling against that narrative for the sake of rebelling against that narrative. You start to have a sense of what it is that you actually stand for and where you stand. It also for me, I'm just, this is my experience because knowing what you want and knowing what, what resonates with you, part of the, part of my tool is checking in with the body. Mm-hmm. So we come back around to the body again, because like, even when someone says a truth, like my body gets goosebumps, like it's not cold. It just happens. It's like a, it's like a yes, or, mm-hmm. you know, something happens and then I can feel a tightening and it's like, Ooh, that's obviously not good. Um, so checking in with the body also feels like a, mm-hmm. a, another way to bring that into being a valuable tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think maybe I'll just speak to this, you know, the reason why I was asking that question before, what does it feel like to be around a man who's disconnected from his body is that that's, often what a lot of women are saying when they say i can't feel you or i wish that you would be more emotional or i wish you would tell me more about how you're feeling or how come you're not vulnerable with me how come you don't share more or i feel like i can't trust you but i don't know why you know some version of that generally speaking what's happening is the woman is saying i can feel that you can't feel yourself yeah. You know, I can, I'm tuned into the fact that you're unaware of what's happening within your own body. Mm-hmm. And a man who's disconnected from what he's experiencing below the neck is a dangerous man. You know, he just is. You know, there's a man who's angry is not a problem. A man who's disconnected from understanding that he's angry is dangerous. That's scary. Right. Because yeah. if I'm unaware that I'm actually angry and I'm acting from that place unconsciously, that's a problem. Right. And so we have to be willing to, again, tune into the body, as you're saying, and and be able to experience like, what am I actually, what are the sensations that I'm feeling? You know, it's not just labeling the emotions mm-hmm. that might not actually be, so, oh, I feel sad. Oh, I feel angry. Okay. My work's done. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> away we go. It's like, no, no. What are the sensations that you're feeling? And can you ground yourself? Can you root yourself so that you're not so caught in your thoughts? You know, you're not so caught in what do I need to say and how do I need to fix this and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in doing so, you're likely, again, acting in a very like non-conformity way. I've heard you say that uh, 
if a if a man is to risk everything to be a man, like risk everything to be a man, what is like what does that mean for a man to risk everything to be a man? Mm. What is risk and what is everything? <laughs> so first off, I've talked to a lot of men. You know, I've worked with tens of thousands of men over the last decade from all over the world. And what's interesting is that a lot of men do feel like there is a risk to unapologetically saying, I enjoy being a man. Mm -hmm. I am masculine. Mm. You know, that that's actually going to elicit attack in today's culture to just, and I, I've seen that I've made posts just about, I, I love being a man. You know, I don't, I'm not, I don't apologize for being a man. And mm -hmm. how reactive some people are to that notion. You should apologize. Men are dangerous. Men have caused harm. So what it means to risk everything for being a man and being who you want to be as a man is that you have to risk not being liked. Yeah. You know, you really do have to risk that. And you have to risk knowing that there are going to be aspects of your life that are going to be largely thankless from society. You know, it's like 90% of plumbers in, in the United States are men, you know, 98% of the people that get into our sewers and make sure that, that the shit literally goes from your house to the septic tanks and the, you know, processing plants in America are men, you know, a lot of these jobs that are, are being done by men are nobody gives thanks for that. No one's like giving gratitude for that. You know, no one's like thanking the electrician and the plumber. Like, you know, we just built a house and it was done entirely by men. Thank you, you for know? the shit not being all over my house. Yeah. <laughs> down that too. <laughs> but you know, I, so in a non-comical way, like we, we have to risk the fact that other people might not like what we have to say. Sure. They might not like what we stand for. They might not approve of the life that we want to live. They they might disrespect it. They might attack it. They might think that it's um, harmful or uh, or something along those lines. And so we have to we have to risk knowing in, in in a way that there are going to be people that won't like the life that you want to live. You know. And do you know who Terrence McKenna is? You ever oh, yeah. heard it? Yeah. Okay. He's got this great saying that I, I love and I think about all the time where he says, you know, the world is entering into a space where it needs an archaic revival. You know, it's entering yeah. into this time where we where we have created so many complex problems that we have to reach back into the very like depths of our human evolution of what we created long and long ago, you know, into the Kabbalion and, you know, into alchemy, into some of these old ways of looking at the world. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the work that I do is bringing men through these old processes of initiation, that there's value in initiation, you know, because you return to the community, to the society, and you're more capable and competent of being of contribution to the things around you in a meaningful way where you get something from it. But the risk is that people might never know. People might never acknowledge you. You know, people might never agree with your way of living or your way of being, and they might not ever value that. And so that's a risk in, in a society that's saying, you know, you should, you should live how you want to live so long as it, fits with what society's told you it should look like. 
Yeah. Well, the risk in that is that you lose yourself and you find no, you have no joy. You're confused. You're miserable. You're in bad marriages or bad relationships. Um, I mean, that, that is an even bigger risk. I think the last thing that I would say is that we, as human beings, but I think specifically as men, we have to understand the risks that we are already taking on by staying in a place of comfort you know by staying in this overly domesticated overly docile unfulfilling way of existing where we never get our ass out into nature without our cell phone and spend five days out in the wilderness to meet who we are when no one else is around when no social media is is giving you the thumbs up that what you're doing is great when you're not immersed in some podcast or you know anything else like that you're literally just in nature on your own right to see who you are in those environments and to rewild yourself as a man and to get very clear on what's the risk of living in this overly apologetic overly domesticated unfulfilling way you know and to really get clear on that and to see the cost that you're paying and likely the people around you are paying for your unhappiness because the mm. truth is that most men that are overly domesticated are very unhappy you know they're very unhappy they're not connected to their primal nature they're not connected to a sense of wildness and and consequently they're not connected to a sense of aliveness in their life mm. and so they're searching for it in porn they're searching for it in booze in partying in drugs in hookers and whatever it is right in gambling etc and they're trying to find this sense of being connected to a deep wildness that they yearn for internally, but it's lost, you know? And so that's the archaic revival within men is to reach back and say, not that we have to go, you know, back to what things looked like traditionally a hundred years ago. That's not what I'm advocating Let's for Let's face it, the sewer all. systems back then were not that nice. It was just <laughs> panels down the side of the road. So we have improved some things. Thank you. <laughs> that's Paul. right. That's right. That's right. But like, I'm not saying that we need to go back to relationships and how they looked or any of those things. I'm saying that we as men can risk reconnecting to our own wildness within and, and to do that around other men. And that there's, there's a potency in that, you know, and facing our own darkness within facing the trauma that we may have experienced and the abuse that we may have experienced and the, the neglect that we may have experienced might just be the first step on that path and that our pain can serve a very valuable purpose in our life, right? Yeah. Our pain, when we don't have purpose as shadow. men, right? Yeah. When we don't have purpose as men or like, I don't know what my purpose is in life. You know, it's just like 300,000 books on purpose on Amazon, yeah. right? It's like, holy shit, man. Like <laughs> how many freaking books do we have to write about purpose, right? Right. But, <clears throat> when we as men don't have a sense of purpose or direction or meaning in our life where i have seen every man start that creates a very valuable path is with his pain is turning his pain into a purpose and and prioritizing that mm. self-reflection and that healing uh will always put him on a trajectory that is far beyond what he could ever imagine and i've seen it happen for so many men that's where we need to begin but it's also that there's a huge risk in that you know, yeah. as a man, there's a huge risk, a huge reward as well. I I'm mm -hmm. a huge fan of the masculine. I, I, I think that there is such a place in the future where there's balance for the feminine as well as the masculine. 
when I say female and male, and then the feminine and masculine within each one of us. I mean, mm-hmm. this is next level reality when we are all, when we are able to merge those two things within ourselves to then be able to see that in someone else and respect that. I think that's, I just think that's when we evolve. A hundred percent. I agree. You know, I think that that's just such an important aspect of our, of our evolution right now. And what I usually say to most men is we're, we're very externalized as men. Like we like to look out at the world and solve that problem and like get fully immersed in our external life. And so what ends up happening is that a lot of men are trying to figure women out. You know, they're trying to understand the feminine by looking at women and saying like, what do you want? And what do you need? And how do I make you happy? And if Mm -hmm. I can figure those things out, then maybe I can be happy internally, right? It's a very rational process. Yeah. And, and so what I say to most men is stop trying to figure her out, right? Stop trying to figure her out or solve her problems or, you know, any of those things, right? She's not the journey. Women are not the journey. They're not the, they're not the path. They're not the purpose. And that you are as a man, your ethics, your morals, your values, who you are, what your purpose is, what your function is in life, all of that is the adventure. And so the truth is that if you as a man want to, in in essence, really understand the feminine, it's not going to happen by understanding your partner or your mother or your sister or the woman that you work with. It's not going to happen by understanding the feminine out in the world. It'll happen by understanding the feminine within yourself, right? So the moment that you can turn towards your emotional body, your capacity to have compassion for yourself as a man when you are abusing yourself verbally, right? I mean, the amount of men that are that self-deprecate and talk to themselves in a wildly abusive manner is so, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because I have worked with so many men and I've heard their inner stories and I've heard their inner narrative and I've heard the way that they speak to themselves. Oh my gosh. Like Michael Singer and Untethered Soul. (laughs) You'd never be friends with that roommate. Like if that that roommate in your head, you would just never be friends with them. No, totally. You know, and I I facilitate this exercise all the time with men where at at a retreat or a weekend, I'll have them sit across from another man at the weekend and I'll say, okay, write down everything that your inner critic says, that your inner judge says. And so they'll, you know, they'll all be sitting there and they'll be writing and I'll say, okay, now one of you is going to go first and you're going to look at the other man. You're going to speak to that man from your inner critic. You're going to tell him exactly what your inner critic tells you. And every single guy is like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to speak to him like that. He's a good guy. It's like, well, then why the hell are you speaking to yourself like that? Oh right? shit. Oh, so they're, so, they're, they're looking at the person and making judgments of whatever, whatever the critic yes. says, like yeah. you're kind of short, you kind of whatever. Right. And so, but that's a lack of compassion internally. It's a lack of nurturing internally. It's a lack of our capacity as men to have a relationship with our own feminine orientation. And so, you know, in my, in, in my book, I talk extensively about like, here's what your relationship to women teaches you about you as a man. It's not about figuring her out. It's about understanding who do I become when I'm in relationship with her? Mm. Who do I become? Do I become needy? Do I become insecure? Do I become volatile and high conflict? Do I become avoidant? Who do I become? Because it's not about trying to fix her or figure her out. It's about how do I understand myself in a more depth-oriented way because that is so rewarding. 
Every man wants to have a certain level of emotional sovereignty, a certain level of self-leadership and self-authorship. And, you know, my work has always been to guide men down that path. How can you learn more about you? How can you learn more effective tools and resources to be more self-governed, to be more self-aware, to be more self-understood? Because it's from that place that you're not only going to feel more safe with women, more attractive to women, more on your purpose, more on your mission, but you are going to have such a deep level of self-respect. And yeah. that just feels fucking good. You know, it just feels good. And I think that's what a lot of men are craving. And so we have to be willing to look at the more feminine oriented nature aspects and attributes within ourselves, And for a lot of guys, what that means is looking at their relationship to their mother. And they, that's where shit gets very real. You know? <laughs> shit gets real, real. <laughs> I mean, look, like a quick access point to anyone I meet is I'm like, tell me about your parents. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's true though, because, true. you know, we, I mean, I don't know, is, I don't know if this is true or not, but I tend to feel like we attract one of our parents and we act like the other. That's what I experienced anyway. And I all, and I totally thought that the the one that I attract was the problem, but it's wow. actually a result of how I acted, which is the other one, the one that you don't notice. And yes. so I realized that I acted like my mom by abandoning my feelings because she didn't wasn't in touch with that and didn't cultivate a relationship with that. So I did the same thing that she did to me, to my inner child, myself. And then it put me in these situations where I attracted relationships that mm. weren't in alignment. Um, so is that, is that even accurate? Is that how it goes? Or is that just my experience? No, I'm, I mean, that's pretty common, right? Like we, we gain a blueprint, a foundational blueprint of the feminine from how we interact with our mother, mm -hmm. you know, like there's a, a, from a developmental standpoint, like child, child development, from a developmental standpoint, between the ages of zero and three, there's no difference, no distinction for a child between itself and its mother. It literally is its mother. So from a nervous system standpoint, from like zero to two, from a nervous system standpoint, what a child is experiencing is what its mother's experiencing, right? It's so tethered. I mean, think about it, right? It's literally, yeah, literally in the was. Womb, plugged <laughs> into mom, what mom is feeling, it's feeling, what mom's thinking, experiencing, it's feeling and experiencing. And so for the first few years of its life, as it comes out of the womb, I've seen this in my son, right? My son is 20 months old and what she experiences, he experiences, you know, and, and you can see it happening real time. And so we have to understand that as men, part of our work is to see how do we view women? What's our story of the feminine? How do we interact with them based on how we were brought up, based on our relationship to our mom, based on the blueprint of you know this entity, this person that brought us into the world? And that can be very challenging because for some men, mom wasn't around, mom was critical, mom gave them up for adoption, you know, nothing was ever good enough for mom mom was emotionally volatile and you know told the boy about how you know she would never want him to be like his father and that you know his father is you know all of this stuff and so so we can have very tumultuous relationships with that and we can keep women at bay that we love 
simply because we're acting out this old story that women are unsafe or women are always shut right. me out or whatever it is. It bookends the conversation a little here with the final final chapter, the final section of your book being about um, the final boss is the victim. Yeah, which is, you know, I'd written something very different than what's in the book initially, which was a much more like social commentary. <laughs> and my my editor was like, this feels like it's, you know, because the book is very much designed for a man to go through it and learn about himself, but also do a tremendous amount of work. There's exercises mm -hmm. and questions mm -hmm. throughout the book because, you know, we as men, we react and respond to being called to something, but we also want to do things in order for change and transformation to happen. Mm -hmm. So I made it very doing oriented, but the, the initial uh, part that I had within the victim was very much a, a social commentary because our current society is in some ways reorienting itself and restructuring itself around victimhood. Mm. And there's this kind of hierarchy of suffering that is being created within our culture. And that hierarchy, hierarchy of suffering and victimhood is saying, the more that I perceive myself to be victimized, the more power I think that I should have within culture and society. And so victimhood has become a way to, to garner power, right? To gain power over other people, right? Oh, what you said is offensive to me and that hurts and that's violence. And you're so wrong. that, right? That means that you're wrong and I can do and say whatever I want to you, right? So anyway, I didn't write about that. <laughs> what I wrote about was how- You don't want to hear about identity politics? Huh? Uh, not generally, no. <laughs> Let Jordan Peterson handle that. Yeah, the, yeah. Peterson's got that for days, you know, him and Andrew Tate can go out there and and, uh, you know, I mean, there's there's value in in a little bit of everything of what people are talking about. But yeah, Peterson does an interesting job of that. I, I like listening to him sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but what I did talk about was how for us as individuals, the victim is the hardest thing for us to see. No one, no one, no one, no one that is a human being wants to see where they're being a victim. You know, no one wants to admit where they have felt victimized. And no one wants to see where they are acting like a victim, even if they aren't a victim. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens a lot within relationships is that you'll see and hear the couple start to talk about fairness. It's like tally keeping. Well, I did this yesterday and I watched the kid for this long and I took the garbage out, but I washed the dishes, right? And so you don't appreciate that. Da -da -da -da. And what's happening is that the two people are sitting in the space of i'm the victim here and you're the person that's causing me pain right you don't understand me you don't see me you're not acknowledging me you're not giving me validation you're not appreciating me right and so that erodes relationship victimhood erodes relationship and the challenge is is that it's our individual responsibility to see where we are playing the victim and where we genuinely have been hurt and victimized and to heal that you know at the beginning of the book I, I talk about um i'm a man who has been abused and i'm a man who has abused others or i am a man who has been hurt and i am a man who has hurt others mm -hmm. it is very challenging for us to admit when we were abused when we were hurt and then to see how we passed that pain on to see mm -hmm. how we've passed that hurt on right mm -hmm. and so we have to be willing to see where maybe we were put in a, a victim position as a child, 
you know, where we were verbally abused or emotionally abused or neglected or abandoned or sexually abused or whatever the case may be, right? Bullied at school, et cetera. We have to be willing to see that because otherwise, if we're if we ignore that pain, that pain will come out in our life and it will put other people in the position that we were in. We will literally yeah. become the arbiter of the pain that we experienced and we will pass it on to other people unknowingly because yeah. pain unaddressed is pain that we pass on. Yeah. So that's part of our work as men, you know, to feel sovereign, to feel confident, to feel competent, to, to be the type of fathers and husbands and leaders that we ultimately want to be is yeah. to come into contact with the pain that we were given. It always comes yeah. back to pain. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Thank you for all the good work you do and all that you've already shared in this book, I'm sure will be a hit. And uh, I love that it starts with the shadow. I mean, I think this is valuable for anybody, but, you know, I look forward to the day when men and women, like I described, you know, you, you know, come together within themselves so that we can come together uh, in the world. And I just think we're, you know, it's the next level existence where, there's more harmony and more, 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 more progress. And yeah, that'll be a nice place to live. Yeah. More, more honoring of the masculine and the feminine versus the, the degradation of it, you know, the the degrading of it, the masculine and the feminine honoring both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks everybody for listening to the pretty intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.